Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing week three of the general election campaign and Labour's leaked manifesto. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, political commentator, Miranda Green, plus the FT's all-new election analyst, Matt Singh. Thank you all for joining. So the general election campaign has motored along this week with the Conservatives mostly keeping their head down and letting Labour deal with the contents of its leaked manifesto, which we'll come on to later. Theresa May did try to humanise her image a little, appearing on The One Show, which is known as the Heineken of television shows, I'm informed, and being interviewed on LBC to try and reveal a bit more about her personality and explain to voters why they should believe in her. George Parker, let's begin with this one show thing, which everyone got very excited about, that um, Theresa and, crucially, her husband, husband Philip May sat down on the sofa to talk about life, love, their marriage and bins. Yeah, and it seemed to go down very well with the punters. I was up in Birmingham, Erdington on the high street meeting uh, some of the target Tory voters and a number of people had seen that programme and they thought that the Mays came across as a lovely couple down to earth. And I think what I find quite surprising about this whole phenomenon and the way that Theresa May has presented herself is that she has somehow found a way of connecting to people whose lives are in- entirely different to hers. So, for example, I met a, a builder on Erdington High Street who said that she's one of us. And I said, well, what do you mean she's one of you? She's she's comes from the home county. She's the vicar's daughter. She lives in a very expensive house by the River Thames. She wears a £1,000 leather trousers. What do you mean? And he said, well, look, she seems like one of us. And I think that appearance on the one show was part of that sort of packaging herself up as someone who's down to earth serious and identifiable type that people can recognize it's quite a john major thing as well because obviously he got the most votes ever that a prime minister has in an election he somehow managed to connect with this small c and big c conservatism as well of british people that kind of attitude of just getting on with it and i think Theresa may came across as a normal person a little bit introverted maybe but certainly not a politician like if david cameron had sat there with sam cameron no exactly and the fact that they were talking about what they cooked and the fact that philip did the boys jobs of putting out the bins it was it was identifiable i I thought the other thing that was very interesting was that we got a glimpse of philip may which we've not seen before because or heard yeah you shouldn't underestimate the significance of philip may at sort of a serious political figure in his own right in the Conservative Party, has been for for decades, and often seen as her sounding board in the City of London, the person who will be the social glue at social gatherings at Number 10 Downing Street. And, of course, he was there when we hear she made the decision to have this election, walking with her in Snowdonia. So a really important political figure. And we've heard just briefly on that that he's maybe a bit more to the right than she is on certain issues. So whenever she becomes a bit too... Um, lefty then she's got a husband to rein her back in or something like that but it didn't go down with everyone um, well Miranda that some people actually sneered a little bit at this interview and kind of said she's very bourgeois not very interesting and doesn't actually have much to sell no some op-eds off the back of this interview that um, seemed to think that you know Theresa May was a bit boring 
Well, that's the point of her. You know, anyone who didn't understand the enormous appeal of the maze sitting on that dreadful bright green sofa and talking about who puts out the bins has missed the point about an election that is all to do with Theresa May's personal brand. And as George says, it's about this idea that she's someone who just likes to get on with the job and that she is quite ordinary. And you talked about how John Major also played into that tendency for the British public to like someone who seems a bit of an outsider to the elite. Theresa May, as George says, in some extraordinary way, despite her prosperousness, the fact that she's had a fantastically elite university education and gone gone into politics off the back of that, she manages to be seen by the voting public as one of them and as a sort of outsider to the elites. And in this era of the tumult around the Brexit decision and now who's going to push it through, this is absolutely crucial for her. I mean, I totally agree with George. I actually thought they came across as, as charming and delightful. And, um, you know, snotty columnists <laughs> objecting to the idea of girls' jobs and boy jobs clearly don't get the point, but the electorate get the point of Theresa May, and that's what will matter to her on June the 8th. And Matt's saying, is this sort of the hint at why her leadership numbers are so good? Is it because of her image, or is it just because Jeremy Corbyn's are so bad? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, certainly when you ask um, about them individually, I mean, it's not. you can see that it's not just Corbyn doing badly, it's, it's that she's doing well, and the sorts of themes, although we haven't had any polling since this one show thing but there have been um Ashcott focus groups that the, the same sort of themes coming through it's sort of it's one of us um understands my values uh, you know th- that sort of thing and significantly among the people that are saying things like that it's it, she's doing much better among working class people much, you know the sort of people that David Cameron wasn't able to reach and i think that's a big part of her success Actually, in those Ashcroft focus groups, which are sort of swing voters, the very people who are up for grabs in this election, there's the most extraordinary section when they're asked to imagine what animal would the party leaders be and where poor old Jeremy Corbyn is described as an anteater sort of snuffling around in the undergrowth. The public seem to think that Theresa May is a wise owl sitting on the branch until it's time to swoop. Imagine that. I mean, you really couldn't get a higher (laughs) accolade as a leader. And and this election, George, as it's going, it's becoming more and more about Theresa May from the Conservative side. And this is my sort of pet theory that this is the UK's first presidential election, the way they're selling her and not the Conservative brand, that you had a bit of that with Tony Blair and other leaders, but very much to a great extent, everything's about that. And we saw the Conservative battle bus was unveiled in the North East on Friday. And you'd have to look very hard to find the Conservative Party logo (laughs) on that bus. You remember the 2015 bus? It was a Union Jack and the Conservative um, bestriding the side of that, where it's all about Theresa May's team, Theresa May's plan, Theresa May's leadership, all those different sorts of things here. And that might go down well because of what Matt was saying, but it does mean if anything goes wrong with her administration, there's only really one person to blame here. There's no team Theresa. That is true, although I guess in the end the Prime Minister will always take the blame. I don't know whether I totally agree it's the first presidential election we have, and Matt might have some figures on this, but it always seems to me that where the party leader's popularity exceeds that of his or her party, it becomes presidential around the person, right? So whether it was Margaret Thatcher or later on... John Major, I think was, that campaign was built very much around his own personal... The soapbox and Tony, get Tony, normal guy. Tony Blair and all the rest of it. But I think you're right that this this campaign is really unusual. In fact, this is built around Theresa May. The Tory battle bus launched this week. You know, you have to have a magnifying glass to see the word Conservative written on the side of the thing. And the interesting thing is that 
that she's going to have her own mandate. And she and her co-chief of staff, Nick Timothy, are putting together a Tory manifesto. And the thing is, we don't know, and neither do the Tory candidates know, what it is they're standing for election on. But whatever it is... It's great. <laughs> it's going to be Theresa May's version of conservatism. And that gives her a un very unusual level of personal power and also accountability if things go wrong. I think that is a big question for, you know, candidates that I've spoken to. They're sort of focusing on strong and stable coalition of chaos. And but, you know, they're going to have to suddenly buy into this. And it's been very tightly held, unlike the Labour manifesto, which went around about 80 people. <laughs> the Conservative manifesto, I think pretty much nobody but Theresa May, Nick Timothy and probably Philip May know what's going to be in it. And that's due next week, if I'm right. So what's this? It's meant to be coming out in the second half of next week. They keep pushing the timetable of the launch of the manifesto back, I think probably to give the Labour Party's campaign time to breathe, <laughs> to put it politely, and let the Tories uh, and the Tory press get their teeth stuck into, into Labour. Well, I think George makes the crucial point. Theresa May looks as if she's heading for a huge personal mandate, but what is the plan <laughs> that she's going to implement? And, of course, in the manifesto, we might have a bit more detail on the domestic policy side of that plan. But on the big question of the day, Brexit, no one really seems to know. And there was this wonderful moment yesterday when David Cameron may have let the cat out of the bag, unintentionally or maliciously, we don't know, by saying you have to vote Conservative to allow Theresa May to ditch the lunatic hard Brexiters inside the Tory party. And, you know, that's certainly not going to become clear, whether that's the real game plan when they publish the manifesto. So, a mandate, yes, but to do a what? We're not sure. It's quite bizarre seeing David Cameron back on the campaign trail with the old pullover <laughs> and leaflets. It was like the past sort of year or so haven't happened. The last thing on Theresa May, George, is that there's a bit of a falling out with Philip Hammond. This has been rumoured ever since the National Insurance Contributions debacle um, during the budget. But there's been lots of rumours swirling around Westminster of a big falling out over the manifesto with Philip Hammond wanting to take a more cautious, restrained approach, not wanting to tweak too much on spending and not have constraints on taxes whereas Theresa May Chief of Staff Nick Timothy wants to go bold and this has increased talk that after the election Mr Hammond might find himself out of a job. Yep there's plenty of speculation about that and I think that is the defining ideological struggle with the manifesto between Philip Hammond who represents the free market Thatcherite tendency of the Conservative Party and Nick Timothy who wants to take the party in a different direction, almost a social democratic direction with, you know, much more intervention in the economy, um, rules to restrict foreign takeovers, um, limits on executive pay and all that sort of stuff. And that I hear there's been a lot of toing and froing between the two of them. That's been dressed up in some quarters as a row. And indeed, there's speculation that Philip Hammond might be replaced after the election by possibly Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary. Who knows? I think that's possible. Guidance I've got is that Theresa May doesn't want to change her top team. And I think we have to remember that Philip Hammond and Theresa May go back an awful long way. They have probably the closest bond that, that Theresa May has with anyone in the Conservative Party. So while I think it's, the talks have been robust and probably bad tempered at times, I'm still a little bit sceptical about the idea that she'll sack Philip Hammond as Chancellor after you know, less than a year in the job. I suppose the question is we don't actually know between those, those kind of two polls where Theresa May actually is. No, and the interesting thing is up until now, and the big ideolo ideological battles that were playing out in the Cabinet, it was Philip Hammond who prevailed. If you remember, it was Philip Hammond who put the brakes on this idea of having trade union representatives on company boards, for example. And when there was a discussion about restricting foreign takeovers, he said, we're not going down the French route where we protect Danone, you know, the strategic yoghurt maker. And Philip Hammond also in Cabinet was very robust in making the case against 
putting an energy, a cap on energy prices. You know, he's, he said, well, why don't people switch? You know, he, he represents red-blooded Thatcherite conservatism. And I think the way that that is synthesised into the Tory manifesto is really interesting because, as you say, Seb, we don't really know where Theresa May is on this. Um, well, we, we might find out next week. Matt, state of the rate at the moment. First of all, has anything much shifted in any of the polls? Not overall. I mean, individual polls have had small movements as they do, but the story is really a strong and stable lead for the Tories, <laughs> to coin a phrase. It doesn't seem like there's been too much effect from the local elections last week. It's a little bit hard to say, but certainly it does look pretty much as you were. So the Conservatives sort of mid to high 40s Labour, somewhere around the 30% level. Of course, that's been a talking point because last time Ed Miliband got 31.2% of the Great Britain vote. And if the polls are somewhere around there, and if certainly if Labour gets something around there, that's then going to be the June the 9th talking point on the Labour side. How can you call this a bad result if you got the same, maybe even slightly more, than, than the last two elections? Of course, given the collapse of UKIP and that so many of those votes came from Labour, I mean, that's not really a, a straightforward comparison, but that is perhaps a significant level to watch nevertheless. One thing we have seen is just a very slight and gentle increase in Labour's polling because before the election was called they were sort of close to 25 or even 20 in some of the polls and some supporters of Jeremy Corbyn have said that Labour is surging now I think that's probably overstating it a little bit but their vote does seem to be solidifying around that 30 what's going on there there's a few things going on so depending how you build a polling average some of the more recent polls have been from pollsters that tend to have Labour higher I mean I think that's just a pure coincidence so uh, that does tend to to have an effect there's been a further, maybe not so much over the last week, but the, the collapse of UKIP has added a few points to Labour support. The other thing is that 2015 Labour voters who were saying don't know, a lot of them have gone back to Labour, which is, I mean, obviously that's a finite supply of people, but it has made some impact on its own. And then on top of that, there have been, depending how they adjust for turnout, whether they take people at their word when they say how likely they are to vote, some Labour voting people have sounded more like they actually going to vote and in some polls that wakes them up so it's a combination of small things i don't think it's anything fundamental and miranda this week we had the candidates deadline on thursday this means the party has now chosen all their candidates and the most significant thing seems to be that ukip are not standing everywhere they're not fielding in all the seats and we don't know the exact number but it does look as if that could really help the conservatives in a lot of places it absolutely should help the conservatives it's also interesting from the point of view of watching what's going on inside ukip because it's hard to discern a rational pattern particularly in where they're standing and where they're not standing uh, in that you would have thought that they, if they had a limited number of candidates they wanted to put up, they would not stand against hard Brexiters. But they are, for example, standing, I think, against uh, Philip Hollibone, uh, the very hard hard Brexit Tory. So that's, it's interesting from that point of view. And, of course, now that all the candidates are in place, you can also start to look at what the makeup of the House of Commons might be after June the 8th and what that balance on the Tory backbenches will really be like in terms of influencing Theresa May's direction on policies. But I think also just picking up on what you and Matt were talking about, you know, we're all thinking about seats in the House of Commons, 
But it's been really revealing this week the extent to which the Labour leadership are just looking at that bar graph on vote share. And after Jeremy Corbyn made his speech to launch their official election campaign, he then went off, for example, and campaigned in seats where he doesn't need to campaign, only in safe Labour seats, because he just wants to protect that 30% plus vote share rather than fight for seats where he's up against a real Tory challenge. Mm. Well, I think that's right. I mean, all the, the Corbyn focus, in a sense, is on June the 9th and what happens immediately afterwards and um, we'll be talking later to my colleague Jim Pickard about the leaking of the Labour manifesto but certainly the idea that this was leaked to the Daily Telegraph by persons unknown known will be the first line of the Corbyn betrayal narrative on June the 9th as he seeks to hold on to his job. And it does seem George that this UKIP collapse is the most interesting story of this election because up at you know Theresa May has essentially done what everyone a lot of Tory MPs want to do which is reuniting the right bring people who MPs like Jacob Rees-Mogg think should naturally be part of the Conservative fold back in and bring those voters back on side, which could, as I'm sure Mike can tell us in a moment, really help them in seats. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible the um, the extent to which UKIP has collapsed and the, the will to fight has gone out of the party. You know, um, for example, in Cornwall, one of the most pro-leave parts of the UK, UKIP are fielding one out of six, one candidate in six constituencies. It's a remarkable thing. And if you remember at the start of the campaign, Paul Nuttall, the party leader, said that they would only stand aside where they were fighting really hardline Brexiteers, not five to midnight Brexiteers, the real ones. But they're pulling out of seats where the Tory MP was campaigned for Remain. Uh, they're pulling out seats all across the country. And I think the interesting thing is you point out, first of all, that will help the Tories, obviously, because the right is being reunited. But Matt will have data on this. It's the way that people, Labour voters, have gone through UKIP and have now moved across the Tories. And I know we've used the expression before about the gateway drug, but there is that that shift as well. So it's not just reuniting the right, but they're pulling people across from the left as well. Yeah, I mean, these candidates have only just come out at the time we're doing this, so they'll need to be examined further. But uh, yes, I mean, as Miranda was saying, there's, there seems to be very little rhyme or reason to the, the pattern of where they're, they're standing down. I mean, some of them are, are sort of where they've got 25% of the vote. In fact, in some cases, they're actually ahead of the Conservatives. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. We can't simply assume that it's all going to go to the Conservatives. Some of it might go to Labour. And it also, it's not all going to go in the same proportions in all areas. So there's work to be done on that. And I'm looking at this along with John Byrne Murdoch. And um, so you can expect something interesting depending on what we, we find. But no, it, it is super interesting because the collapse of UKIP already makes things particularly interesting because of the fact that marginal seats, not the very easy ones for the Conservatives, but the ones with Labour majority between about 5% and about 20% have disproportionately large numbers of UKIP voters. So it already plays in that. But if instead of UKIP collapsing to 4 or 5%, they're actually literally going to zero because they're not standing there, that could actually make a difference in one or two very close seats. So it's, it is really interesting. If it was a quieter week for the Conservatives, it was a pretty hectic one for the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. On Wednesday evening, a leaked draft of the party's election manifesto made it into the public domain, given to the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mirror. It revealed a swathe of radical policies to raise taxes, increase spending, nationalise Royal Mail, the railway, parts of energy and scrap tuition fees. It's easily the most radical prospectus to be put in front of the British electorate for a generation. But how did this make it into the public domain? and what's going on here. Uh, Jim Picard, you were one of the people who saw sight of this leaked manifesto when it came out. Um, why was it leaked? Uh, we may never know. 
I know that's not the answer that our listeners want on a, a Saturday morning because clearly they want the full full inside story of where this came from. I mean, there, there are lots of theories out there about could it have been Tom Watson, the deputy leader, who's known to not exactly be a great admirer of the leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Could it be disgruntled staff at uh, the headquarters in Victoria Street? Or, most sensational of all, could it be some friends or allies of Jeremy Corbyn himself putting it out there? And although that may sound a little bit bonkers, the theory goes that if they put it out there in that way, firstly, it gets people discussing Labour's policies, which is the thing that they've wanted for ages. And they have been very sick of us talking about Corbyn's personality and Corbyn's uh, n- n- not getting onto the subject of policy. And that we certainly have for the last two days. Also, the, the conspiracy theory suggests that um, when the day of reckoning occurs, uh, and I don't think it's going to be a day of reckoning for the bankers, it's going to be a day of reckoning for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, they need a f- uh, an excuse in place for what went wrong, and that excuse involves blaming the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, otherwise known as MPs. It involves blaming the media, mainstream media, and the fact that the manifesto is leaked. What a great betrayal, and it's all sort of set up. Personally, I don't think the leader's office did leak it, but um, it's as good a theory as any. It is a very good theory. And if you look at this election campaign, they are very much sort of fighting it for the next Labour leadership contest. Jeremy Corbyn's going around the country and speaking, not in areas where Labour's going to win seats, but areas where he's got a good... Where they've where they where he's got a good level of support there, so clearly they've got the longer term aspirations of the Corbyn project in mind, as well as you know trying to hold on, win some seats, gain some votes on June the eighth. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, step back from this, I mean, I think it's nonsense to suggest that they don't care about winning or they'd like be delighted to lose. I mean, of course they want to win the general election, but that's not everything to them. Purity is is massively important to them as well. And being revolutionary and all the rest of it. And if you look at sort of what lots of the people at the heart of Labour leadership have said in the past, they have said things along the lines of it's not, you know, winning elections that matters so much as, as the great revolution. But clearly, if they do lose loads of seats and it looks like they're going backwards, then it's not great in terms of them just being able to, to hold on to their grip on the Labour Party. Um, the manifesto itself, George, was, as I said, pretty radical in terms of its proposals, that if you think about where the party's last general election manifesto was, it was not a million miles away from the Conservatives, a bit more tax mm. here, uh, a bit more spending there, a, a, a energy cap of which things Theresa May has now adopted. But this is really something quite different here that, you know, this big swathes of nationalisation, um, scrapping tuition fees, plus £250 billion of investment over 10 years. Um, I think the FT's crunched the numbers and it sounds like about £60 billion is the amount they're spending, which I'm sure the toys all make hay of. But some of these policies, voters like the sound of them. Yeah, I think that's um, a problem that uh, the Labour Party has grappled with over the last few years, that individually a lot of their policies poll extremely well, whether it's scrapping tuition fees or renationalising the railways. Those poll extremely well. But the problem is collectively, the public take a view on A, whether the party is likely to be able to deliver them, and B, if they do deliver them, who's going to pay for them? Is it going to be me? And that's why policies that are individually popular don't necessarily mean that the party propounding them is popular itself. I think the thing about the Labour manifesto is that it is radical. It is the most left-wing manifesto probably since Michael Foote's back in 1983. But I would say it's not as radical as you might believe if you read about it in the Daily Mail or the Sun. To take one example, the um, the repeal of some of the trade union laws. They're only talking about repealing 
the 2016 Trade Union Act. They're not talking about turning the clock back to the days before Margaret Thatcher, renationalising the railways. Well, that was only the 90s. Yeah, this is something that happened relatively recently. It's just a question of not renewing franchises when they they come up. They're not going to renationalise all of the big six energy companies. They're going to have public sector comparators running in regions. So it's radical. It is very left wing. It signals the clear view of Jeremy Corbyn, which is public sector good, private sector bad. But actually, it probably doesn't go quite as far as some people think. But yeah, I, I just to interrupt. I mean, I do agree with George there that uh, you said it's miles away from what Ed Miliband was putting forward in 2015. But again, Miliband was going to interfere with energy markets. He was he wasn't going to renationalise the entire railway system, but he did want to kind of set up a state backed railway company competing for franchises and remember Ed Miliband was going to have a mansion tax he was going to put up the top rate of income tax I can't remember if he was going to put up corporation tax or not but it, a lot of it was in the same vein so there are kind of there are strands of great radicalism and Corbyn saying we would get all of our energy or 60% of our energy um, from low carbon no carbon sources by 2030 it's phenomenally radical because energy includes transport uh, how the way we heat our own houses and not just the electricity electricity system. I mean, I think that target, for example, is almost impossible to achieve. Um, so there's, there's sort of strands of radicalism. But, but is it that much further than Ned Miliband? And I'm not sure. And if you look at Andrew Fisher, who's the guy who's writing the Labour Manifesto, a lot of our listeners would never have heard of because until two years ago, he was a kind of junior official at the relatively obscure PS, PCS union, who's now in this very powerful position. And he wrote a book two or three years ago before he was in this uh, position of power in the Labour Party, where he was suggesting that all the banks should be nationalised. He kind of pondered whether all land should perhaps be nationalised as well. So, um, But there are plenty of people around Jeremy Corbyn who, who would, you know, given a free reign, might want to go quite a lot further than this manifesto that are putting out next week. So it's really the great compromise <laughs> manifesto then, Jim. Yeah, these guys are more ambitious than they're, than, they're le- than they're letting on. Just tell us a little bit about the internal party machinations here. So we talked about how this manifesto made it into the public domain, but the process of approving the manifesto is an 80-strong body which met on Thursday and gave it the nod and it's now gone through there. Um, mm. How much do we know how much it's going to change the final document from what was released? Because it doesn't sound like it's going to be that different. There have been some crucial arguments within the party on some of the areas immigration yeah. and schooling but Seb we're getting a little bit in the weeds here aren't we I mean for for our international <laughs> listeners what what Angela Rayner said to John McDonnell at the uh, the clause five um, meeting yesterday but poss- possibly a little bit too much detail I mean that I think what people need to know is that the manifesto that was leaked two days ago is pretty much uh, what's going to be released last week. And yes, there are little sort of scraps during that meeting yesterday. The GMB is a bit cross that the Labour Party wants to ban fracking because loads of their members are in the energy industry and they don't like that kind of thing. But they were swatted away and there were sort of discussions about how much emphasis to put on one element of education policy over another. But uh, yeah, small, small beer really. And George, how are the Tories going to attack this? Because in some ways, there's so many things. You know, they really went for Ed Miliband on the mansion tax and jacking up taxes. But, you know, it would be hard to know which of these they're going to go for. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's quite interesting. On the day that the Labour manifesto was leaked, the Conservative Party were deliberately not going out of their way to attack it because they knew very well that other people would, including the media, the economists would pick it apart. And they didn't want any part of it. And it shows the total confidence the Conservative Party has at the moment that they can take this apart, that they didn't feel the need to go public on it at all on the day. So, I mean, they will definitely tot up the spending 
commitments and they will no doubt have a bombshell with a figure written on it appearing on billboards near you between now and June the 8th, the tax bombshell that Jeremy Corbyn intends to explode. And the other thing I think they will focus on relentlessly is the whole question about patriotism, defence and strong leadership. And um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn this week, um, as, as well as the manifesto, gave a speech about foreign policy and defence where he started off by saying, I am not a pacifist. You know, it's never a great political strategy to draw attention to one of your greatest perceived weaknesses, but that's what he did. Absolutely. The fact that he even has to answer that question is, is a bit of a problem for Labour. And I totally agree with George. It's a bit like that famous Muhammad Ali fight where he just sort of stood there taking loads and loads of, of blows and then and not really doing an awful lot and then still won. And the Tory, the Tory party doesn't need to put out 70 promises, which is how, how many there were in the Labour manifesto, 70 different offerings, but also kind of bitty that, you know, it's the man in the street really taking on board all of these promises when they're just coming wave after wave. And there's so many of them in every single area of national life. And it goes back again to what George was saying, which is that if you think the guy leading the party is this kind of weak or slightly odd or a bit of a duffer or whatever people's perceptions of Corbyn are and they think the party is fight, fighting all the time, but they don't just think it, they know it, completely disorganised, you know, how much faith can they put in the promise of free school meals for their kids and, and all these other things? Mm. Uh, finally, last point, George. Um, any overconfidence from the Conservatives there, do you think, towards Labour's? Because as we said... When you pull it apart, some of it's not as radical as you think. Some of the individual policies are quite popular. And if people do feel they want some radical change, then they might be more attuned to this than you might first think. There's always a danger of overconfidence. And, um, you know, Matt Singh earlier on was talking about the fact there does seem to be some solidifying of the Labour vote around 30%. There are very few general election campaigns where there isn't a wobble at some point along the line from the party that's in the lead. And Conservatives the are polls. encouraging that wobble. They're saying it yeah. could happen. And the Conservatives want people to think that this election is tighter than it probably really is. There's always a danger of overconfidence in any campaign. But I think they believe that at the end of the day, this will come down to a question about who do you trust to be able to deliver this programme. Whatever the programme is, it doesn't matter if you don't trust the person who's supposed to be delivering it. And just to be sympathetic towards the Corbynistas, you know, we've had all these people saying you can't win an election on the 1983 manifesto. We also thought until last year that you couldn't win the US election as a kind of Donald Trump figure. You know, things do change over 30 years. Things definitely do change. And it's not beyond the realms of reason to think that someone could come back in five years with a load of left wing soak the rich nationalisation policies, but who are sort of culturally more in tune with the British working class, which is they love Brexit, they hate immigration, and all the rest of it. And if you could somehow marry that kind of attitude with some of the sort of aggressive leftism, you know, you, you might have a different result under a new leader. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.